Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cube, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Reiner Kerr, an energy technology economist at the Centre for Academic Collaboration Initiatives an adjunct professor at the University of Massachusetts Lowell in energy technology, economics, and policy. He is a very, very interesting and bright man, and I think that people will appreciate the discussion. However, before we get into that, I'm going to have a quick discussion with our Energy Security Forum coordinator, Joe Kalman, about some of the news stories affecting global energy security this week. How are things with you, Joe? I'm doing pretty well, Kelly. How about yourself? Oh, good. Yeah, it was great. Uh, Labor Day weekend, always like the transition into fall, and uh, we're going to get after it here. But boy, there's a lot going on. What's uh, front of mind for you? Uh, Well, first, I feel we should talk about uh, the recent Chilean constitutional referendum. So for those who don't know, uh, on Monday, Chilean strongly rejected the revised constitution, which uh, President Gabriel Boric campaigned on in 2021, voting 62% against and 32% in favor of the proposed constitution. Uh, More than 85% of the Chilean electorate participated in the referendum. Interesting. Um, You know, Chileans overwhelmingly agreed to to draft a new constitution two years ago in 2020 in response to massive protests, which began in 2019 and focused on rising costs of living and opposition to resource privatization and inequality, two of the very large uh, platform planks that got the current leftist government elected. Um, This new constitution banded constitutional rights into many areas which have typically been the realm of legislation such as housing, education, internet access and healthcare. Normally, constitutional amendments wouldn't garner this much attention globally. Uh, However, this amendment also includes tougher environmental and community rules for mining projects. So miners are now worried about how projects could be affected by new rules over water rights or the effect of disbanding the Chilean Senate on political stability, both of which could be in future versions of the Constitution. Well, other than 62% of people voted against it, because <laughs> it, I, I think that, you know, to give the folks listening a, a little bit of an understanding, I'm going to say that more than 90% of the people in the world believe climate is changing, number one. Number two, they all want to do something about it. But tell you what, when it comes down to what you have to do to get by on a day-to-day basis, people start to push back. And that's exactly what's happened in, in Chile. And you know, most importantly, people need to realize that Chile is the largest copper producer in the world and sits on top of 23% of global copper reserves and provides 28.5% of global copper supply. It's also the second most important player in the lithium world after Australia with 22% of production from a whopping 43% of global reserves. Copper and lithium are crucial, almost irreplaceable materials for the energy transition and the unfolding of this constitutional question will have global impacts. It does speak to um, the resource bargain, Joe, you know, and I, I, I hearken back to something I read a long time ago called the obsolescing bargain of the resource economy. And, you know, it's something we should explore further in our podcast, because I think it's central to the environmental part of energy security. And how does that affect people's day-to-day lives, which really, really the thrust of what we're trying to do here. So um, very interesting discussion, Joe. Thanks. 
What's next? Next up, uh, on September 2nd, which was last Friday, G7 finance ministers released a statement on their intention to adopt a price cap on Russian oil and petroleum product sales. So the statement says that the price cap will be designed to, quote, reduce Russian revenues and Russia's ability to fund its war of aggression, uh, whilst limiting the impact of Russia's war on global energy prices, particularly for low and middle income countries. You know, I, I'm trying not to, I'll try not to be trite here, but this agreement means little without details and how the price cap will be set and enforced. An agreement on principle means little with something as difficult as this proposed policy. It's like they're playing Monopoly. For one, the agreement is between the G7, excluding major oil and product importers like China, India, and Brazil. These countries value their relationships with Russia and are unlikely to sign on to any price cap. Don't you agree, Joe? Yeah, I agree. And uh, I think there's there's even a few other problems, just like technical issues. Uh, there's also the question of who keeps track of this price. Uh, like tracking volumes is one thing. So it's easy to keep track of where Iranian oil is going because tankers can be seen from space. Uh, but uh, pricing is a lot more opaque. Uh, if the ban is enforced by, say, denial of insurance to those who are buying above a certain price, then uh, how close are the insurers to this pricing information? And how do you force Russia to even give the insurers accurate pricing information? There, there's, there's many ways to hide this stuff. And also the uh, level of the price cap itself. So the, the G7 statement says basically nothing about where exactly the price would be set. Uh, but the general consensus is it'll have to be above Russian production costs just to say to Russia, you can still make money off of this. You're just not going to make as much money. Uh, but what's the Russian production cost here? Like, is, is it the average Russian production cost or the marginal Russian production cost? Both of those have pretty big trade-offs here. Like some real clarification here is desperately needed. And uh, I think they need to get to that sooner rather than later. I just don't understand the the process and pro like the, the reasoning for this. I, it's accomplished nothing other than to make, to put doubt into the market. I, I'm just going to leave it at that, Joe. I think it's it's opaque, as you said, at best. Uh, last up, I'm sure most people listening to this have heard, uh, Liz Truss became the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom on Tuesday and immediately began circulating a energy relief package to combat soaring domestic energy costs. So uh, the largest component of this plan will be a cap on energy prices for households at around 2,500 pounds per year, compared with a planned jump to over 3,500 pounds, which would have occurred next month without this plan, and a projected increase to 6,000 pounds in 2023. Per household? Per household. Wow. You know, this is astronomically scary. You know, Bloomberg reported on documents showing energy suppliers will receive funding from the government to cover the gap between sky-high wholesale prices and the mandatory price gap. And there will be an additional scheme to protect businesses, which there are not as many details on yet. There's a lot to unpack here, Joe, or unfold, and there's a lot that isn't known yet. Absolutely. This, this is a very new policy, and I'm sure that whoever's listening to this tomorrow, if you're really plugged in, you might know more about it than we do right now. But... Uh, yeah, Bloomberg's documents also show that this is expected to cost 130 billion pounds to freeze household bills to April 2024, 
and an additional 67 billion pounds for the business side of things. Now, this is getting very close to the size of the rescue packages that governments all around the world released for COVID. So I think that this is going to be a pretty major strain on an already taxed fiscal capacity for the UK. So in my, in my opinion, Joe, the UK is trying to put its fiscal weight behind the global competition for natural gas. And this will be a massive outflow of cash from the UK to the suppliers, most especially Norway and, you know, LNG suppliers around the world. I just like to draw the folks attention to a couple of things, you know, around 1900, five US dollars equal to pound. I think that currently the pound is about uh, maybe $1.50 per US dollar. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. Like one, one pound equals 1.5 US dollars. Yeah. And it's trending the downward. The way the British are, are, uh, quantitatively easing <laughs> their citizens econ- uh, economic outlooks here. I, I think that before the end of the winter, we could possibly see the pound be below the US dollar. That's just a, no. a prediction on my part, but it's, it's, a, it's a function of really problematic fiscal policy and I guess monetary policy as well, Joe, because you got to print this cash, right? It really does call on the uh, ability of the uh, United Kingdom to uh, well, I get keep its citizens from freezing to death. Well, I'd wonder if they even have a choice, you know, like, um, like you said, to keep the people warm, like UK has a lot of drafty houses that are heated by natural gas. And there is a global competition for this natural gas. Now that LNG has connected global markets everywhere around the world. Uh, either except Canada. UK, <laughs> except Canada, yeah. Either the uh, UK gets a natural gas or someone in Pakistan, India, or Bangladesh gets a natural gas. And uh, I think people in the UK would rather they get the natural gas rather than people in India. Although people in India would much prefer that they got the natural gas instead. So We'll see, won't we? Yeah, we will see. Okay. Uh, those are interesting stories, Joe, and thanks a lot for putting these together um, and discussing them. Uh, we'll keep an eye on it. Absolutely, Kelly. Not a problem at all. Let's switch over to our interview with Reiner Kerr. For today's interview, recorded August 16, 2022, we discuss electricity markets with a specific focus on New England in the United States, but of course with relevance to, the mo- to most jurisdictions globally looking to reduce emissions from electricity generation. Joining me from South Yarmouth, Massachusetts is Reiner Kerr. Reiner is an energy technology economist at the Center for Academic Collaboration Initiatives and an adjunct professor at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Welcome to Energy Security Cube, Reiner. Thanks uh, for having me. I'd like to uh, take the opportunity to uh, tell you a little more about myself as it leads into the, uh, the discussion, but I retired about four years ago and I've been teaching um, at UMass Lowell for three years and then I moved on to start the, uh, the center. Good for you. That, that leads to my first question. Can you provide an, an overview of the Center for Academic Collaboration Initiatives and what it is and what it does? Yeah, it's, we set it up as an experimental platform to get universities to work together on energy economics. Um, the last 20 years of my career, I was technical advisor on um, over 50 major projects and transactions worth over $70 billion dollars. Uh, in the US and and other countries. So I work closely with project developers, lenders, many technical specialists, uh, legal advisors, market and economic advisors to make sure that large investments were financeable. So I was trying to take that experience and turn it into a 
a course that I could teach after retiring. When you retire, you want to keep learning, you want to keep networking, and you want to give back. So teaching was my way of trying to collect my experience and uh, set up a course for graduate engineers that I called Energy Technology, Economics, and Policy, where I wanted to form a better understanding of the relationship between engineers, businessmen, entrepreneurs, economists, and lawyers uh, as a basis for understanding energy economics. So, so the uh, center came out um, of my teaching experience and some of the work I did with some of my students. And uh, the, the problem with energy economics is that it involves several disciplines and it's very difficult to integrate that knowledge. Um, in any university, if you're in the engineering department, there's a business school, there's a law school. Uh, how do you bridge these disciplines to create an effective way to understand uh, energy economics? So that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I ran into some limits at um, where I was teaching based on just how um, departments are set up, how faculty uh, work, how they're silos between different disciplines. And uh, the only way I thought I could break through that was by forming um, this platform and uh, experimenting with the idea of getting different universities to share and collaborate and making um, course materials and projects available to, uh, to a wider range of students. So um, we set up this website as, as an experiment. One of my students um, helped me set it up. And uh, at the time, COVID made a lot of our teaching go virtual. Right. right? So, the, so the idea is, hey, if you, uh, I could work all year to set up a course and teach 25 students one semester, or I could try to reshape that effort into a broader, broader uh, network of academics. So, um, so we set up the center as a way to uh, try to work with several faculty and several students in different schools. And, and we're starting to do that. Uh, we, we don't have any funding. We're uh, purely academic. Uh, the, uh, the idea of not getting paid is an interesting one. When I, was, <laughs> when I was working as a consultant, I could only work on things I could get a client to pay me to do. Right. right? But I had a lot of ideas on things that should be done differently, but you know, there's very limited opportunity. So, so in retirement, you're pretty much unburdened by uh, someone paying you to do something. So uh, that allows me access to all, all of my competitors, a lot of people I worked with. Now I can call them up a network and I don't have any uh, commercial interests that would keep them from acting as a mentor for uh, the faculty and students that I'm working with. So I got a lot of cooperation from um, ISO New England, from a lot of uh, people with expertise in offshore wind and, and other technologies and uh, existing nuclear plants. So it's kind of an opportunity to uh, for more unfettered networking. So I and, guess uh, I could, could you say that it's like a think tank kind of, Reiner? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an attempt to form a collaborative think tank, I guess, right? To the extent we can get uh, people to work together that uh, aren't already working together, it expands it. So, so there's really, uh, there's six disciplines and I wanted to highlight this because I think it's really important. And, and uh, if you wanna be an energy economist familiar with the power industry, there's really six different areas that you have to be familiar with and, and not many people are. 
And the first has to do with the environmental issues um, which have shaped the power industry over the last several decades uh, by imposing environmental requirements and changing the way plants are designed and operated. Now it's the IPCC issuing reports that are relied on as the best science available to form uh, climate plans, uh, decarbonization uh, pathways are built on that. And I think one of the things we still have to go back to is to challenge some of the uh, uh, basis for fear and urgency that's coming out of the IPCC that that's driving us uh, past the application of economics and uh, and the due diligence and some of the resulting planning. The, the second is power technology. You know, a lot of engineers working on different technologies that um, provide opportunities and, and limited capabilities. We also have to know how to implement projects. You know, we got to have great technologies, but if we can't get them built like a nuclear plant. Um, how do you finance them? Who should the owner be? Can we have private ownership, public ownership, regulated utilities owning them? How the power grids work? Uh, not only are they limited in how to provide reliable, reliability and resiliency and adequacy, but, but they form uh, competitive markets that make it uh, difficult for some kinds of plants like nuclear to continue to survive. And uh, then there's a regulation and policy side. Uh, these are environmental lawyers. These are, are people that are setting the uh, setting up the subsidies and implementing uh, decarbonization um, uh, policies that change the whole shape of the grid. And finally, there's economic analysis where you try to make sense of all of this. Um, and, and we've really pushed for the concept of carbon abatement costs as a metric and um, looking closely at uh, hourly behavior of the grid. So, so I've kind of redefined energy economics a little bit, and I've declared myself an energy technology economist because I'm really, um, my background is primarily on the technology project implementation and, uh, and market side. So, um, so I think, I, I don't know if that answers the question. But that, really, that really, that does. And I, I'd like to just, you know, I've, I've got a, a metaphor that I use in this, and it, it relates to what we do at CGII as well. Like, you know, each faculty at a university is like a one speed bike, you know, you're the bike you got as a kid that had, you just pedaled it. And, uh, you know, you got, with you got as much speed out of it as you could get with as the maximum amount of energy you could apply. This is a this is like a multi-speed bike. Like you've got a, the think tank pulls to turns that single-speed bike into a, a six or eight-speed bike, and you're able to take each discipline and feed it into the to the uh, power output, and get more power for less effort. Right. Like that's the metaphor I use, and it's I think it's a good one because that's what we need that kind of collaboration and or at least work that questions each other's disciplines right to get to the to the source of what you're trying to accomplish which is better energy output in uh, environmentally so yeah I, I like that right it's, it's very difficult to do because trying to get faculty to collaborate within a university i think if you start uh, working with multiple universities it breaks through some of the politics uh, that, and limitations. Some colleges get or universities get huge amount of funding for renewables and, and, and popular areas. And for you to challenge that and come back with a report that says, well, wait a minute, maybe renewables are not an efficient way to, to do certain things that could contradict what, what some of the, uh, what's attracting money to some of the colleges. So 
Um, but if you apply a Venn diagram to all these six issues and you get into the center of that thing where it's colored in dark, you know, at the basis of it, which is like our podcast is about economic is, you know, economics is a pillar of that because at the end of the day, you have to fund it. Right. And uh, that seems to me that, and I, I don't want to get off on my diatribe about climate, but energy policy is in the last decade has evolved into climate policy. And, and we got to get back to the center to understand what energy policy really is. And, and you do that. And let's get down in the weeds a bit to this past April, you released a report co-authored by Ahmed Nawful on the limits of renewable power integration in the new England energy market. Since the Canadian federal government is considering LNG export facilities to supply Europe, which may draw from the New England natural gas market, you know, the, the new, as people know, the North American gas market is very integrated. Um, the question is how much gas New England will need in its very prescient Canadian foreign policy. Um, could you give an overview of that paper, Reiner, and why you think transitioning to solar and wind will not be adequate for New England's electricity needs? Sure. So, so this it took us about a year and a half to put this report together, and part of that was because of all the different uh, disciplines and, uh, and and types of information and and the development of of some new models to allow us to do it. And uh, so, so we we really are looking at several questions. The first, you know, how do you how do you um, determine how much it's costing us to reduce CO two emissions? The only reason we have any wind or solar in New England, as far as I can tell, is to reduce CO2 emissions because they cost more than other than, than using gas, you know, inexpensive gas to make power. So how much are we really paying to reduce a ton of CO2? And that's that's the concept of carbon abatement cost, right? If, if there's several ways to reduce CO2 that are less expensive than others, we should pay attention to that. The other is you know, should we limit or prioritize how much we spend to reduce CO2? I mean, that's kind of an obvious question. And at what point are we spending too much where we're doing more economic damage than, uh, than the environmental benefit, right? I mean, if you double or triple your electric rates, that has an immediate damaging effect over the next five or 10 years that, that's measurable if you the rest of the world continues to increase CO2 emissions and you're spending tens of billions of dollars to reduce your part of it, you know, is that a good investment? So we're trying to put some metrics around that. And uh, as the far as the grid evolves, you know, when do you start making too much electricity at the wrong times? There's a lot of people doing arithmetic that say, hey, we put this much solar, this much yeah. wind in, this much demand, but timing is everything. If you don't look at when that energy is being produced, uh, you, you miss the point that we're starting to waste more and more of it, the more we put in. Um, we'll talk about that a little more, uh, but, and what happens when we create surpluses, right? You've got, a, you've got a free market, private investment is building plants and they're competing to sell power. Now you have government mandates that push a surplus of wind and solar in there at certain times of the year, which causes what the price to collapse and, uh, Everybody that operates during that time may have to pay to operate. That's very disruptive to a competitive grid. And, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that has profound effects. The other big question is, can battery storage really reduce these surpluses effectively? And uh, we have these renewable portfolio standards with really high targets where they're authorized to keep 
raising the value of renewable energy credits to get us there, you know, that uh, you, you hit some major problems when you pushing more and more energy in at the wrong times with heavy, heavy uh, subsidies. And, and I think we need to understand that because it has some very destructive effects to the, uh, to the grid. So what are we doing that's new and different? Uh, we're defining carbon abatement cost, which is you look at the marginal cost of making electricity normally from gas-fired uh, combined cycle plants, and you compare the unsubsidized cost of offshore wind, onshore wind, uh, different kinds of solar, and you can calculate you know, how much you're spending to get rid of a ton of carbon. And then there's uh, we, we introduce the social cost of carbon as a policy metric. So Biden uh, announced uh, last year $51 a ton based on a large report that looked at um, present worth of damages from uh, environmental uh, changes and determined $51. Now, that goes back to uh, Obama. Trump had it down to $11 by changing the discount factor. It's the, the social cost of carbon is not a very good metric, and it's been attacked in court. And uh, there's a lot of discussion about whether it should be used. But you know, without a policy metric, what do you compare the social cost of carbon to? So we're using the $51 as a rough policy. It's the only policy guideline we have. And then when you look at the carbon abatement costs for different technologies, it's two to 17 times that in New England. So the cost of putting rooftop solar in to reduce carbon emissions is 17 times uh, that, that, that metric. So the other one is to look at how do you model the grid on an hourly basis to see how effective these um, technologies are in reducing carbon. And, and this is something that has been difficult to do. You needed these uh, complicated production cost models. Uh, there are hourly models. So that gives you a completely different view of what's happening. The, um, so the findings, you know, what did we, you, you can read the report or the summary, but um, the important things that I consider as a takeaway from the effort are that, you know, we're implementing policies right now that have a long-term effect, right? You, you're committing to offshore wind projects with 20, 20 year or longer offtake agreements. Uh, you're, you're committing to renewable energy credits to get projects built. And, uh, and we're committing to things that are very expensive as a way to get rid of carbon dioxide. And, and we're, not, we're not looking at it that way. So the SERP, and as we put more and more in, we, we start to make too much energy at the wrong times. Um, and these surpluses are gonna, and wastes are gonna get very expensive. So if we have existing nuclear plants and we can keep them operating, that's the cheapest way to uh, reduce carbon emissions compared to shutting them down. But the nuclear plants are uh, compete for uh, the energy market with wind and solar once you go beyond a certain threshold. And trying to keep nuclear plants that operate all the time running at the same time that offshore wind and uh, and solar are operating a third of the time or 40% or, or of the time becomes incompatible from a market standpoint. And nobody's really looked at that and what that does when you start uh, putting surpluses in. Yeah, it's really been, the, there's been a lot of ready fire aim in the, in the uh, whole build out of renewables. I, 
you're nailing these issues. Like it's, uh, uh, I get the CO2 abatement, but the absolute cost is dramatic. It's just, um, what's the next step? The, uh, I, think, I think we need, we need more um, of an understanding of electric rate impacts. Right. right? The, a lot of these plans are very expensive. We're talking about spending $60 billion in the next 10 years in New England to, to uh, uh, reduce carbon emissions just by promoting solar and wind. And uh, that's our electric bills have already doubled in the last 10 years, uh, where we've put in $10 billion worth of investment in solar and wind, and a lot of the uh, infrastructure, uh, transmission and distribution improvements that wouldn't be there if we didn't want to make distribution systems work as two-way systems to support distributed solar and, and to connect remote wind areas to the grid. So I think we need to pay attention to what's being spent on transmission and distribution. Um, and then the, the overall effect, I mean, think about it, we're going to spend $60 billion in New England to reduce carbon emissions by 12 million tons per year. And, and that will most likely lead to the shutdown of our three nuclear units that will end up adding another um, eight or 10 million tons a year of CO2 back in. So, so the net so effect you, is not very much. You're spending a lot of money and you're not getting anywhere near the targets, I guess. So that needs to obviously needs to be looked at more closely. So what's inside that, that uh, strategy, what's the plan for base load power when it's not windy and, and it's cloudy? Like, well, how, how, does, how does that work? Well, if you, if you look at the load shape that's modified by, by wind and solar, it, uh, it doesn't allow for base load generation, right? Uh, base load generation occurs all the time. If you overbuild solar and nuclear, you're creating effectively a negative load when you have surpluses and uh, it makes it, so, so what do you do with a nuclear plant that has to run all year when prices go negative 20 or 30, I think we estimated up to 40% of the time in 2030, you might have negative prices because wind farms are getting performance tax credits and uh, renewable energy credits that they can pay some of it back into the grid through negative pricing. That's a, that's a killer if you have a plant that has to run during those periods. So it, it will likely uh, make baseload plants uneconomical, and it will even uh, hurt older wind and solar plants that have run out of subsidies. They're not going to pay to run. So you're creating subsidies for a significant part of the year that, um, that are very, uh, you know, that, that eliminate the value of a lot of assets that we built in the first place to reduce CO2. So, you know, that leads to my next question. In, in your report, and I don't think people think about this enough, and it, but it's start, starting to come, as you just mentioned, with the the um, uh, time run, the run out of time of existing facilities and, and assets around decarbonization is the marginal impact of more wind and solar in terms of CO2 abatement declines over time. And can you explain why this happens? I think you've, you've kind of have, and and what are what are some of the implications? And maybe to, to continue on that, um, what's how, how do we in my mind, we're a long ways away from batteries that can pick up the uh, this the surpluses. I, the development is 
I, I don't know, decade away at least, or maybe more. Is that not true? Well, so the, so the basics of uh, uh, why, why we get surpluses is that most of our emissions are in the evening. Our, our peak loads are in the evenings. The sun starts to go down uh, right before we hit our uh, our peak CO2 emissions. So, so you keep adding more solar, it's going to increase your midday generation, which will never affect the evening emissions most of the year, except maybe in the uh, June, the end of June, when you have the most solar, most of the time solar, adding more solar capacity is going to occur at times that don't match our peak loads. And wind happens around the clock, you know, 30 for 40 percent of the time. So, so those evening emissions, which might be half of our total CO2 emissions, only 30 or 40 percent of that can be impacted by wind, no matter how much wind you put in. And uh, adding solar isn't going to impact it. So trying to eliminate all of the CO2 by putting in wind and solar is physically limited by the timing of loads and the timing of, of wind and solar generation. So, um, you know, we, when you start putting batteries in, maybe I'll, uh, I'll jump ahead into why batteries don't work. Right? Yeah, that was going to be my next question. The, um, the, how, how you replace natural gas generation with battery storage. So, so Oil, if you think about, so, so we're trying to reduce carbon emissions, right? Yeah, we get that. Everybody gets that, I think. So, so you want to add batteries to reduce carbon emissions, right? So what happens when you charge a battery? Well, it increases your system load, right? So if, if your system load determines how much you're running your gas plants, whenever you're charging a battery, you're running your gas plants more. And the battery only recovers 85% of the energy. Right, so if, if you charge the battery when you have to require more gas generation, you're increasing CO2 emissions by 15%, right? You're taking, you, you're making more energy to overcome the uh, battery round trip efficiency um, and you end up with more CO2 emissions. So the only time you can charge a battery to reduce CO2 emissions is when you have a surplus of wind and solar. So. If you don't have any surpluses of wind and solar, you know, putting in a battery is just going to increase emissions if you cycle it every day and you run gas plants more to charge it. So when you start hitting these surpluses, you can charge a battery and then you can discharge it when you're displacing gas generation. If you have surpluses all the time, it doesn't make sense in a 24-hour period to charge the battery with surpluses and then discharge it again while you still have surpluses. So when you model this on an hourly basis for the year, and this is why hourly modeling is so important, you find out that it's actually pretty rare early in the development of, uh, of uh, wind and solar to be able to capture the surplus and put it back into the market. And it might, you know, and a battery is expensive to build, right? If, if you measure, the cost of recovering the investment in a battery by how many kilowatt hours it produces, and you're only running it three to 5% of the time to recover surpluses, it's enormously expensive uh, to, to, to move that energy around. And you know, we talked about that in the report. So what happens is if, you, if you've got a lot of surpluses and you got a small amount of batteries, those batteries can run, you know, they can almost cycle every day. They, you run them every day at 17% utilization, and you can calculate what the cost of energy is to recover the investment. And it's it's not cheap. No, you know, it might be a, 
Now, if you only run it three to 5% of the time because you're putting lots and lots of batteries in and they have less and less opportunity to recover surplus solar and wind, you know, you're, you're tripling or quadrupling the cost of moving that energy around. So, you know, we put those charts in the report. It's something that really needs to be looked at more because most people think, hey, you got this much solar generation and uh, you put in batteries and it's going to move it, uh, you know, magically to uh, reduce uh, carbon emissions. But it doesn't when you look at it from a timing basis. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, it, it only became apparent when we started running these hourly models that you load it up with batteries and either the batteries are used a little bit because you put a lot of them in trying to recover a lot of surpluses or you only put a few of them in and they have a very limited role in, in recovering surpluses. So, so these plans like New York, we're starting a work group to look at New York where they wanna put in 30 gigawatts of offshore wind and 30 gigawatts of batteries. You know, People do arithmetic and they think, oh good, then we just move all that energy. Yeah, that all matches up, right, and not so fast. So I think, I don't know if that answers the question well, um, but you know, that, I mean, that's kind of a, uh, a timing issue that really needs to factor back into, uh, into, um, into the planning and, and what's, you know, these are gonna be hugely expensive and you know, what's the rate impact and uh, how much are we spending to get rid of a ton of carbon? It gets to be, you know, these are silly numbers when you, when you look at them. Yeah, without the, and, and you know, and I'm not going to go into U.S. politics here, but this whole giant bill that's just been passed seems to me to just continue to falsely apply false economics to with subsidies and continued injection of capital that comes that is that comes without cost. I, I And it has cost. It has a, a, not just opportunity, but it, it's societal cost is, is the one that's going to ring the bell for people as, it, as you say, as, as prices of the of the energy they need continues to rise you talk regularly about the risk and i think this talks about that um this question talks about that and it's the risk that deregulated electricity markets pose to legacy power station legacy power that generation like nuclear power stations could you explain your position on electric electricity regulation where it, when it comes to nuclear power or you know, the broader uh, view of, of uh, regulation, because I've got a further question and, and uh, it's coming true this morning in another jurisdiction. Sure. So um, there's really three kinds of ownership. And we talk about it in our report. You can, you can have private ownership. And a lot of the plants in unregulated areas have been, are now privately owned. Um, you can have regulated ownership where you have a um, regulated utility uh, that owns it, and you can have a you can have a public public ownership. Public power means it's it's really a government entity that that owns and operates the plant, and they all behave very differently. And in the U.S., when we deregulated, um, you know, a large part of our market, uh, a lot of the nuclear plants were purchased as private owners by utilities that um, have both regulated assets and unregulated assets. And some of these utilities um, are trying to divest themselves now of the uh, unregulated assets. What happens when you own both kinds of plants is that if you spend money, more money on the regulated plants, the regulator loves it. 
if you spend more money on the privately owned plants, the regulator won't allow it. So there's like a one-way flow if you're trying to shift resources between the two. So, uh, so the, the regulated companies that have an unregulated subsidiary that operate uh, these legacy plants are under pressure not to share the benefits of fleet ownership across this, this border. And it becomes a losing proposition to them, especially when um, the markets are deteriorating and there's low energy prices. So, so the, the regulation allows longer term views, right? A regulated cost of capital is low. You, you, you've got a longer planning horizon. You've got an integrated resource plan. You can keep all these nuclear plants running with an integrated view of reliability and resiliency. But these private plants are pretty much orphaned from long-term planning. Uh, private ownership has a high cost of capital, a very short planning horizon. And if you see a market that deteriorates, which has happened to Indian Point and Pilgrim, uh, combined with this uh, uh, problem with owners having both regulated and deregulated plants, you know, it makes it makes it very difficult to continue to operate these plants unless there's uh, additional subsidies. So, some plants are getting additional state subsidies because they're clean uh, energy producers, but um, unregulated owners are are going to be orphaned, and without intervention, we're going to see a lot of uh, nuclear plants probably retire before what they could achieve based on life extension. And, and I think this is a big issue because what, what I mentioned earlier for New England, right? You're gonna spend $60 billion to reduce 13 million tons a year of carbon, but then you're gonna probably allow three nuclear units to shut down, you know, putting, putting eight to 10,000 back into the market. So this whole idea of uh, deregulation uh, makes it more difficult to keep nuclear plants running, especially when states are are uh, overbuilding wind and solar that has a, uh, an overlapping market with nuclear. And now you got the new bill tries to subsidize uh, nuclear generation, but it's also subsidizing renewable generation, which are competing for space in the energy markets. And it, it, it's, it's something we have to take a closer look at, but in, in the long run, I think nuclear will lose. And, um, only in, in regions where uh, there's regulated, integrated resource planning and they limit how much wind and solar you introduce into a, a limited energy market. Um, I, I think it's a dim future for nuclear unless there's a big change in how we uh, are approaching these climate policies. I think that, you know, in the last little while I saw, I think yesterday where Governor Newsom was talking about a billion and a half dollar loan to I guess it would be PG&E to, to extend the life of one of the of the one of the big nuclear stations in California the noise that uh, Germany is now thinking differently about the three plants that there were going to be decommissioned this year I'm concerned that this is just a politicians trying to make policy that makes that works for politics as opposed to long-term solutions to to uh, energy issues, um, and I and I think, you know, it, it all revolves around deregulated versus regulated, and and uh, like, for example, I see this morning in Texas where there's a big shortfall because it's not windy, and uh, 
Um, could you give your, your views on that? Like the, 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 and, and going back to the ERCOT issue in February of 2021, um, what, what, I, I, in Canada, as you know, you know, SAS Power in Saskatchewan, full crown corporation. Alberta has private power agreements. Um, Ontario has giant, one giant uh, uh, crown corporation. What, 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 how do you feel about that? Like, I, I think that, you know, you, electricity is treated, or I think the citizen feels like electricity is a public good. They, until, and they certainly notice that it isn't when it, they have a blackout or their bill quadruples. So uh, where, where do we go from here, Reiner? Well, you know, when we were building combined cycle plants um, before the turn of the century, private owners would design power plants very differently than regulated owners. So the private owner strips down the plant, they get rid of unnecessary buildings and enclosures, they, they probably make it more difficult or inexpensive to maintain the plant. Where a, reg, you know, we, a regulated owner would, as long as the, the regulator lets them spend the extra money, will build more reliable plant, more, con, more, conservative, more conservatively, and uh, with, a, with an eye to uh, uh, reliability and resilience, right? So, so a regulator will, will allow that to be put in the rate base. A private developer, like a lot of the plants in Texas that were built turn of the century, if they didn't see a profit in putting extra features into the plant, they're only looking five or 10 years ahead. And you know um, these events, like the, the super cold uh, period that froze uh, a lot of equipment, uh, you know, you rely on insurance or something else to cover your losses, right? There's not enough upside in the market to do that. And the Texas market is a little unique because it doesn't pay for capacity. And reliability comes mostly from plants that don't run. So New England has a lot of old steam and some coal plants that, that sit there and they, and they get capacity payments every year, but they stay there. So if we have, if we lose a major line or um, some nuclear plants go down, we can bring these old plants up and keep them running and they get enough capacity payments every year to keep them alive. In Texas, uh, it's an energy only market. So, so they provide an incentive for investors to have standby capacity there based on the probability that they get a lot of money occasionally when, when, uh, when an extreme situation hits. So it, it creates a very volatile, um, you know, it makes it difficult for private investors to go in and invest in reliability and resiliency. So I, I think it's tied to, to the market and how people designed plants when they deregulated the industry. So it's more of a short-sighted profit uh, orientation that is reflected in the plant design. You know, there's a similar problem in New England. We have a shortage of gas in the winter because it's diverted for residential and commercial use. So when that happens, most of our gas-fired combined cycle capacity gets either very expensive to operate in the, in the spot gas market, or some of them can switch to oil, uh, especially if, if we have an extreme, uh, extremely cold period. But a lot of the owners of these simple cycle plants that can switch to oil don't invest in an inventory. They don't want to pay for having all that oil right. sitting Why around. Right, keep it sitting there? Yeah. Because they don't know if they're going to need it. So ISO New England had to come back and provide some incentives to do that. So, so private ownership makes you not invest in, in remote 
events and things that are unlikely to happen, but that might be very important from a reliability standpoint. I don't know if that's a good way to answer it. Well, you, you kind of, <laughs> I guess, you know, my own view is there needs to be a, it's a combination of all of the above, you know, and, and, you know, but I've been around the energy business a long time and private equity needs quick rates of return or they won't invest. And, uh, you know, this is a, th these types of assets need to be, you know, the rates of return need to be, uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a Gordian knot, really. I, I don't know how we solve this issue because there's, there's certainly eventually the cost is, is down to the taxpayer and uh, um, we're in for some big adjustments, I think, in North America, as, we, as we're seeing in Europe and other parts of the world, as we continue to try to um, feature panacea for carbon abatement. I don't think there is one. Um, before we go, Reiner, um, in the prelim here, when we were talking before we started this discussion, you've got some experience in Alberta. Do you want to just expound on that a little bit? Because it's become what we talked about has certainly become part of the energy discussion in Alberta, certainly in the last several months and year or so. Um, give us a little vin vignette of when you were here in Alberta a couple decades ago. So we were working with uh, South Africans on finding process markets for their uh, advanced uh, high temperature reactors, the pebble bed reactor. So, so I convinced them to send me up to Calgary to meet, to try to meet with some of the oil companies and uh, look into replacing gas cogen plants that make this high pressure steam, you know, for long periods of time to get oil out of the oil sands for recovery and use a nuclear heat source because the some of the reactor designs, like the high temperature reactors can produce this super high quality steam. You, you can't use a light water reactor to do that. So it turned out to be a perfect match technically, but it, it was very difficult because the oil companies um, didn't want to be associated with the nuclear industry. I guess there were some exchanges between Western Canada and Eastern Canada on, uh, on developing nuclear you know, can-dos, putting can-dos out in Calgary and, and Ralph Klein and others back then had uh, <laughs> rejected um, some of these uh, efforts. So the, the bottom line was that there's an excellent market there. If there's a if there's a market for um, for tar sands, um, you know, sin crude coming from tar sands, uh, and you can eliminate a lot of carbon emissions by using uh, reactors to make the hot, super high pressure steam. And these reactors run 24 seven. Um, you know, they, they, they can move the pipes around to develop different areas. They can put pretty, pretty good size uh, reactors in there. And it's all about the price of gas, right? Because all they're doing is replacing gas that's used in uh, these cogens to make the, the high pressure steam. Except um, that it also doesn't have carbon emissions because it's nuclear, like you, you got green right. power, right? So uh, if you, you give them a premium for carbon emissions, you could calculate what the carbon abatement costs for doing that is, right? We haven't looked at that, but. Yeah, so I'm going to just give a pl plug because we mentioned the company before, but we had Catherine Mahonis Cole of X Energy Canada on the podcast a little while ago, and and uh, that technology is the pebble bed type of uh, nuclear reactor, right? In a small nuclear reactor, I'm I'm a bit side outside my envelope here, but could you could you just give us uh, one minute Cole's notes on the difference between say a Candu and a pebble bed reactor? Because right. that's what you were talking about back in the in the first decade of the millennium, right? Right. So a can-do and, and light water reactors all are limited in steam temperature by the fuel design. So 
the, the pebble bed reactor and molten salt reactors and, and sodium reactors can produce much higher output temperatures and you can make very high pressure steam that lines up with what you need in the oil sands to, to replace the use of gas or, uh, or other fuels. Well, Reiner, I, I look forward to more discussion. I, you've given us a great uh, look at the at how energy markets and electricity work and the and the vagaries and challenges of uh, wind and solar as a integrating into a system to make it f efficient. And I really uh, commend you for the work you're doing because I'll go back to the our original discussion about op your operation and outfit, and it really does try to pull a whole bunch of uh, expertise into a situation where it's the the total benefit as you say is is giving back to the um what folks are are having to deal with every day we always ask our guest reiner what you're reading these days outside of building reports or technical stuff what's the what do you read for pleasure but before i answer that i just want to make a pitch for universities faculty and students that want to get into energy economics to reach out to us through our website and maybe we can do some uh projects together well, we're. But, uh, I'll just continue on that that tact, and and we'll have a discussion offline about what we're doing as CGAI in that regard. Okay, and uh, the uh, so so I I like to cycle between history, thrillers, and sci-fi, and uh, so I think uh, history is stranger than fiction, and we don't always learn well from our history. So that's very important. So I'm reading the series of books that a friend. Uh, I uh, wrote about pre-World War II, uh, Bill Walker, who uh, who uh, is, is putting out a series of books. And uh, I was also helping a friend write a sci-fi book, which is very difficult because how do you, uh, especially if you're in your 60s or 70s, have the knowledge of uh, changing technology and, uh, and and how to how to make sci-fi entertaining. Uh, those are those are interesting areas. And uh, Meredith Angwin's book, I'm I'm, I'm reading. Uh, you know, she has an excellent view on the problems that the power industry is having. That's great, Reiner. Thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate your input, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Great. Thanks a lot for having me. Take care. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.